we shall begin uh, a six-week study on the doctrines of grace um, under the form um, of the acrostic uh, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, also known as the five points of Calvinism. I'm going to open in prayer and uh, give basically uh, an overview today. This is an introduction to the five points. But let's begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning. In all that is before us, uh, we rejoice in the privilege and freedom to gather together, to study the Word to pray together, to fellowship together, to participate in the communion table this morning and witness the baptism of believers today. Here now as we uh, begin our study, we pray that you'll bless our time, that you'll be honored throughout the day in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the text that I want to springboard into the study... uh, with is John eight thirty six, where the Lord said, "If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed." Now, Christians, believers, um, often and naturally speak about being saved by grace. That's what salvation is: be saved by grace. But the question is, what does this mean? Does God save us apart from our willing cooperation? Are believers assured of, or can they be assured of eternal security? Or can someone lose their salvation? Why do some people embrace the gospel while others adamantly refuse the gospel, um, is our experience of salvation to be viewed from God's perspective as his predetermined purpose or from man's perspective as a heartfelt hope? Does God truly deserve all the glory with regard to our salvation? Another question, when a sinner is saved, who saves whom? Does God choose the sinner or does the sinner choose God? Did Christ die for the sins of everyone without exception or just the people he came to save? In other words, just the elect, as the Bible phrases it. All of these questions are directly related to the sovereignty of God. And strange as it may seem, there are many today who insist that they believe in salvation by grace, while at the same time insist that man has the power to, quote, make a decision for Christ or not. They argue that God loves everybody equally and alike, yet they are certain that he's going to send some people to hell. They affirm that the creator of all things, almighty God, is omnipotent 
which means he's supreme and all-powerful, but they also are quite confident that finite man is fully capable of obstructing the will of God. Now, in nearly every case, with that kind of thinking, the problem that these dear people have is that they do not know biblical doctrine. And that's what we're after here. Understanding of sound biblical doctrine. See, they, they believe, they hold in common the fact that, that confidence, they have a confidence that man, sinful man, can hu- use his own positive volition to accept Christ and quote-unquote get themselves saved. Fair enough? Is it an overview? Now, the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism, contradict that belief. And throughout time, the greatest preachers, the greatest teachers, the greatest theologians from throughout time adhere to these points due to the fact that they're biblical. And that's what we're after. Biblical truth. Now, many Christians in our day who claim to be anti-Calvinists, for instance, many Baptists in our day, um, they're not aware of the fact that one of their greatest preachers, and one of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, was a five-point Calvinist. He said this, quote, The old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, that Paul preached, is the truth I must preach today, or else be false to my conscience and my God. I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England again. End quote. Okay, so why would someone want to be a Calvinist? At this church, we don't wave that flag. We don't wave that banner. We don't say, you know, we're reformed, we're Calvinistic. See, these things are what biblical truth is, and we're going to explain this. We're biblical. Therefore, we're Calvinistic. Now, the first matter of importance for us this morning as we commence this study is to know that Calvinism is not adherence to a person, but to a set of beliefs which are in right accord with the Scriptures. Those who want to be right in their understanding of the doctrines of the Bible adhere to what's known as Calvinism. So what is Calvinism? Calvinism is a system of doctrine worked out over and over by countless men since the time of Christ. So why would we believe Calvinism over and above other systems of doctrine? Quite simply. Because if we were to determine what system of doctrine hits closest to the bullseye of the scriptures and the scripture's intent, Calvinism would be the first outer ring 
of the bullseye. In other words, Kelvin was a biblicist. He was a lover of God, a lover of the sovereign rule and reign of God over all things, including salvation, which means Kelvin and the reformers were apostolic in their doctrine. The apostles learned their hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation from their Lord Jesus. So it's safe to say that because Calvinists were apostolic, the apostles were Calvinists, which means Jesus was a Calvinist in in the true sense of the word. It was George Whitfield, the great evangelist, who said this, quote, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught it to me. James Montgomery Boyce, quote, The doctrines known as Calvinism are not something that emerged late in church history, but rather are that which takes its origins in the teaching of Jesus, end quote. Now, any system of doctrine that does serious damage to the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of salvation, as the Bible declares them, cannot be considered worthy of our attention as Christians. We would all agree with that, I'm sure. There's no system of doctrine which covers all of these so biblically as what's known as Calvinism. Now, Calvinism can actually be divided up into dozens of points. I mean, after all, there's a variety of propositions and ideas that are woven into the fabric of what's known as Calvinism. You cannot reduce Calvinism to five points. However, if we were to concisely describe the simplistic form of Calvinism's teaching with regard to the doctrine of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, we would look to the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, as we will in these following weeks. But before we do, today is going to be a history study. So we have to look at some history and and, and be able to understand all of this. And at the time of the Reformation... Roman Catholics were met by protestors from where we get Protestant. You're a Protestant here today. You're not Catholic. You're a Protestant. So that means you're a protestor. You come from the protesting movement going back to the time of what we know is the Reformation. The entire system of the Pope, the entire papal scheme was being scrutinized by the reformers under the light of Scripture. They were testing the practices of the church under the light of Scripture. And there were a number of heretical practices, and they still are in the Roman Catholic Church to this day, a number of beliefs that were under attack, boldly launched in 1517 with Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which he nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Church, 95 points of contention with the Roman 
papal system, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the goal, as we said in our studies of the solas, was to reform the church. It was to alter, to transform, to change a very wayward church. That was the intent of the Reformation. Now, at that time, and most certainly due to that pressure, the Pope of that day asked a fellow by the name of Erasmus, who was a a priest himself, but a humanist and a social critic, he asked him to consider the arguments of both sides. So Erasmus, after reading both sides, he stated, rather than fighting over mass, indulgences, Mary, the Pope, and apostolic succession, the central issue at hand is free will. Are you with me, beloved? Okay. Now, during the time of the Reformation, Erasmus wrote a work entitled Freedom of the Will, to which Luther answered with his famous what? Bondage of the Will. If you haven't read Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther, you need to read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. Arguing, Luther that is, argued that there are none good, no not one, none righteous, no one seeks after God, they've all gone astray, there's no fear of God before their eyes, Luther's words or God's word? It's directly from the Bible. Now, Erasmus wanted to establish a teaching at the time of the Reformation known as semi-Pelagianism. Erasmus wanted to establish a teaching known as semi-Pelagianism. Okay? So, there we are. We're, We're in the 16th century. This is the 1500s during the time of the Reformation. Now, He introduces semi-Pelagianism. To understand something of that, we have to go back to the 4th century. Okay, so go with me back to the 4th century. That's where we meet Pelagius. Pelagius was a pious monk, a contemporary of Augustine of Hippo. These are all key names. Augustine of Hippo. Okay, again, the 4th century. Many Protestants especially Calvinists, consider Augustine to be one of the theological fathers of the Protestant Reformation, although he lived long before the Reformation. And that, of course, is due to his teaching on salvation and divine grace. Divine, sovereign grace. Now, the controversy began when Pelagius opposed at Rome Augustine's favorite, well, favorite prayer, famous, maybe it was his favorite prayer, but it was his famous prayer. Lord, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Which is to say, Lord, grant what you command and command what you desire. Whatever you desire, command it and grant me the grace to carry it out in obedience. Basically is what that prayer means. Pelagius reacted in horror at the idea that divine grace, the divine gift of grace, is necessary to perform what God commands. Because Pelagius believed that man had an innate moral ability. 
that he had good in and of himself to do in his power what God commands. Pelagius also believed that moral perfection was attainable in this life without the absolute dependence of divine grace. So uh, Pelagius developed this teaching that was contrary to Scripture, and that is that we're all born without original sin. We're born without original sin. We're basically good inside, and people doing bad has to do with external factors, not internal corruption. Okay, we get this? In other words, Pelagius taught that we're born good, we're born kind, and we are along the way given the opportunity to choose to sin or not. It is not a matter of our nature. Now, if you follow that reasoning through, somewhere along the line, if we don't have original sin, if we're born without original sin, somewhere along the line, there would have to be someone who continues not to sin. Right? Yet all people absolutely die. And the consequence of sin is death. That blows that out of the water. Okay, now, Augustine contradicted this by saying that perfection was impossible without grace because we're born as sinners. We're born with a sinful heart. We're born with a sinful will. So Augustine battled this out with Pelagius back in the 4th century. Okay, now, make, make certain that you know, Augustine never denied. Again, Augustine never denied that fallen man still has a will. And that, the will is capable of making choices. He never denied that. The scriptures are clear on that. But he did teach that man in no way is free to merit salvation. In no way, he taught, is man free to merit salvation. He argued, Augustine that is, that fallen man still has a free will, but has lost his moral liberty. Because of inward corruption, according to the fall. We're still able to choose what we desire, but our desires remain chained to our sinful impulses, which are chained to our sinful what? Nature. The human will is free, he taught, but without liberty, whereas a result... It remains in true moral bondage. That's what Augustine taught, contrary to Pelagius. That man has no recuperative power or ability within himself to either please God, let alone be right with God. That's what Augustine taught, contrary to Pelagius. Therefore, True liberty can only come from outside, and that is based on the sole work of God alone, S-O-L-E, on the soul, S-O-U-L, of man. 
So, as a result, we're not partly dependent upon God's grace for conversion. Augustine's point, we are entirely dependent upon God's grace. Scripture is emphatic. And I read it at the beginning. If, that's a qualification, if the Son sets you free, you are what? You are free indeed. If. Now, at the Council of Orange, that is France, in 529 A.D., after an outgrowth of this controversy between Augustine of Hippo and Pelagius, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic, and the church stated, no one can believe or repent unless it be by the grace of God, man is rendered incapable of meriting salvation. Now, the basic assumption of Pelagian thought persisted throughout church history. We see it today. It showed up in Renaissance humanism. It shows up, it appears today, in modern liberalism. Man is basically what? Good. And of course, Pelagian thought clearly reappeared in medieval Catholicism. Okay, so we're, we're at the 4th century right now. So let's go back to the 16th century, back to the time of the Reformation. Now, at that time, within Europe, there were two major leading schools of theology. The first was known as the Augustinians. Okay, the Augustinians. And the other, semi-Pelagians. Now, during the Reformation, the Reformers, they they came from France and Holland and England and Scotland. These are, you know, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Hooper and Cranmer and Knox. They were not called Calvinists then. They were referred to as Augustinians. Augustinians. All agreeing that we are not free to merit salvation. The Augustinians, the reformers, upheld that man is a sinner by nature. He is incapable of doing good works that will merit salvation, but is bound and in slavery to his sin. That was the theology of the Augustinians. Now, since Pelagius was long ago rendered a heretic, the opposing side of the Augustinians were known as semi-Pelagians. They upheld that people retain the natural ability to do some good, including good works that could be added to the work of Christ and thus equal salvation. Are you with me? Okay. Teaching. That we must be able to contribute. We are able to respond to the gospel without God doing a radical work 
with regard to our corruption and the deadness of our hearts. Salvation is by grace, they taught, but you have to earn it by submitting, here it is, your free will. Okay, you follow this? You submit your will, which they believed was free, so with free will, you are free to seek God, and therefore you are free to merit the grace of God, freely discovering God by your free human nature and reason Alone. That was the thought of semi-Pelagianism. So, semi-Pelagians believed that your mind, your reason, and your will was not affected by sin. The only part affected by sin was your feelings. That is, getting pleasure out of wickedness. You can choose to do right. You can choose to follow God. You don't need God's grace to do that. The reformers, the Augustinians, going to the Bible, taught straight out that the man of heart is wicked and only does that which is evil, what? Continually. That is, the Bible in no way supports Pelagian ideals. So, the Pelagian root of the 4th century shows up in semi-Pelagianism and is a holdover in what's known today as Arminianism. Okay, there's a little history. So, where then do these terms Calvinism and Arminianism come from? Are you with me? Are you sure? Okay, good. Now, <clears throat> during the time of the Reformation, there was a Dutch theologian named Jacob Hermann, or Jacob Harmonson, best known by the Latin form of his last name, Arminius. And he lived from 1560 to 1609. Now, although he was reared, he was brought up in the Reformed tradition, Arminius lean toward the humanist doctrines of Erasmus, who wrote Freedom of the Will during the time of the Reformation. Right? He disagreed with the doctrines of sovereign grace preached by the Reformers and wanted a total revolution against the Reformed Church at this time in Holland which caused division, it was causing church splits, and all of the other ugly divisiveness that occurs with heretical zealots. Arminius. Now, a group of his followers, disciples of Arminius, would call themselves what? Arminians. Followers of Arminius. And they went on to expand the teaching of their master. They insisted at that time that the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, historic documents of the church, were in error and needed to be changed, particularly as they addressed the issues related to salvation of human beings. So they went on 
the disciples of Arminius, known as Arminians, and they formulated the doctrines of Arminius into five novel articles of what they believed the faith consisted of. Known as five points of Arminianism. After Jacob Hermans, that is Jacob Arminius's death. So he was dead. So they came up with these five points. Five points of Arminianism. Point one was free will. Point two, conditional election. Point three, universal atonement. Four, resistible or obstructible grace. And number five, falling from grace. Now, in response to those five points, a national synod convened in Dort. Dortrecht, Holland. And they gathered to examine the teachings of Arminius, and they would examine them, friends, in light of Scripture. So at this time, at this synod, at this council, it was made up of 84 members from five different countries. It met in 154 sessions. This was not a one-time deal. 154 sessions over the course of seven months. This happened in 1618 and 1619. Okay, so question. Who came up with a five-point system? Calvinists? Or Arminians? Arminians. After the synod, the synod of Dort, the five points of Arminianism were found to be contrary to Scripture and declared as heretical. So, to merely reject these five erroneous points, that did not seem sufficient to the men who gathered at the synod of Dort, so... Five corresponding articles were written in order that they might positively oppose the heresy and set forth the scriptural teaching regarding these crucially important issues. Are you with me? Okay. Now, this studied reply of the Synod of Dord came to be known as the five points of what? Calvinism. Calvin, by the way, had been dead for 54 years. Okay? Calvin wasn't around. Dead, we'll say with the Lord, for 54 years. The five points of opposition were set forth in the form of this acrostic forming the word tulip. And the first... The first uh, petal of tulip is T, which stands for total depravity of man. Next week, we'll look at what total depravity means and what it does not mean. What was the intent of the reformers when they refer to all humanity as being totally depraved? Total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. U, or I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. These are historically referred to as the doctrines of what? Grace. Salvation truly is all of grace. That's the point. 
So these points capture for us the very essence of God's solitary, monergistic work in salvation. Monergistic meaning one way. In other words, salvation is the monergistic, one-way work of God coming down to the sinner, not the synergistic work of God and His grace met with man and His what will? His free will. You see, the point is this. The first article of Arminianism, which goes back to Erasmus, which goes back to Pelagius, was a strike at the heart of the doctrine of human fallenness. If you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. Either men are dead in their transgressions and sins, as Ephesians tells us, walking dead men, or they're not. Therefore, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And my question is, did you have any say-so with regard to your conception? Any, anybody? Did you have any say-so with regard to your conception? No, you did not. What color hair you have, what color eyes you'd be born with? No, you did not. You had nothing to do with it. Likewise, you have nothing to do. You had nothing to do with your spiritual birth. Nothing. It was the sole monergistic work of God alone. That's why it's a mystery. How does this happen? Nicodemus asked Jesus, as the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from. You do not know where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Born of. Semi-Pelagians taught that man has been affected by sin, but he's not left entirely helpless. That's semi-Pelagian thought. Now, they said, we're not Pelagians, we're semi-Pelagians. Mankind possesses a will capable of choosing God over godlessness. They taught man's will is free to choose either the word of God or the words of Satan. He has this reasoning and this ability in and of himself. Salvation, therefore, is dependent Upon man's work of faith. Man's work of faith. So, if man cooperates with God, this is what they teach, and the wooing of his spirit, is he cooperates with God wooing you like this, you can be saved. He needs the spirit's assistance, and here's... Boil it down to this, semi-Pelagian thought, Arminian thought. He needs the Spirit's assistance to be saved, but he does not need the Spirit's regeneration. In other words, if you submit your free will, you then can be regenerated versus it's the supernatural sovereign work of God that causes you to be born again. It's the difference. Faith then, with this thinking, with Pelagian thought, with Arminian thought, 
faith is, is to be understood not as a gift from God to the sinner, but instead, faith is to be understood as the sinner's gift to God. In that it, faith, is the sinner's contribution to salvation. That's what it teaches. That was Arminians, or Arminianism's first line of attack against Christian orthodoxy. So what was, friends, as we close up, what was labeled as heresy by our spiritual forebearers at the Reformation has over the last 200 years, over the last 200 years, become the predominant view of modern American evangelical Christianity. And perhaps, look, I'll be honest, perhaps you're saying this morning, that's what I was taught. You may be sitting here thinking, this is what I believe. You've been duped. I say that lovingly. You have been duped. And unfortunately, friends, the influential thought of Erasmus and Pelagius survives today not as a minor or marginal influence, but is pervasive in the modern church. Unfortunately, in much of the modern church is held captive by it. Where today, semi-Pelagian thought shows up in what's known as Arminianism. And what it does, Arminianism radically, friends, radically with a capital R underestimates man's desperate need. And if you underestimate Man's desperate need, it fundamentally diminish, diminishes God's provision and salvation greatly. Compromising the integrity of the message we preach, stripping God of the glory due his name. So salvation, as we're going to learn, is, it's either all of grace or it's not. Either man can boast... Somewhat, or he absolutely cannot. So, if you hold to Arminian thought, I trust, I hope, and I pray that you'll see things more differently, that is, friends, more biblically by the end of our study. Today's the introduction. That's a little bit of the history. Now, if you can sing the children's song, the B-I-B-L-E-S, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it ought to lead you to sing a new song that I made up this week. (laughs) And it goes like this. The T-U-L-I-P-S, that's the flower for me. I stand on the grace of our sovereign Lord, the T-U-L-I-P. Hey! (laughs) Amen? So, there's some history. That's where all these terms come from. And we're going to look at Tulip. One letter per week. And we'll start... 
next Lord's Day with total depravity. What it means and what it does not mean. Amen? In other words, you can boil it down to this. as a primer. It basically means man's absolute, that is his total inability to do anything to attain salvation. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for church history and the many, many mighty soldiers who stood for the sake of truth, many of whom lost their lives. So help us, Lord, to to humbly receive uh, what you have provided uh, by way of your word. And help me to lead um, in defining these, Lord, uh, not according to man's thoughts, but where they came from. That is your word. For your glory and the edification of your people, we pray in Jesus' name.